Thanks for listening to this archive of Teaching American History's first Saturday webinar for the 2020-2021 school year. This was the first in our five-episode fall series called Enduring American Questions. And today, we looked into the issue of whether the American Revolution really was a revolution. Dr. Chris Burkett, our moderator, was joined by Dr. Todd Estes and Dr. Rob McDonald. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our first TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar of the academic year sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading resource online for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach political science and history here at Ashland, and I am director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program for undergraduate students here. This uh, fall, the uh, title of our webinar series is Enduring Questions About America. I almost wanted to say endearing. <laughs> Probably more endearing than others, uh, but enduring questions about America. And we're kind of, we're kind of going back to our, our roots here in a little way. This is these questions that we're asking this fall are the kinds of questions that, uh, that Peter Schramm liked to ask in, in these webinars, for those of you who had the, uh, the, the pleasure of, of knowing Dr. Schramm and maybe having a class with him. He loved to have conversations about fundamentally important questions. So kind of going back to our roots in that sense this fall. So uh, if you're joining us for the first time uh, for one of these webinars, our purpose is to pull together some very thoughtful scholars. We have two fantastic uh, thinkers with us today to have a conversation about these questions. And I encourage all of you to join in that conversation by submitting questions in the Q&A feature uh, so that we can all see those. And uh, we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible uh, over the course of our conversation. In the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation. And you'll also receive a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. So uh, as always, we try to start our conversations by looking at original documents. Our panelists today have recommended some original documents, most of which are available among many others at uh, the uh, document collection at TAH.org. Um, today, the question we're thinking about is, was the American Revolution really a revolution? And uh, I'm very happy to have with us this morning, again, two very thoughtful scholars, Rob McDonald of the United States Military Academy at West Point and Todd Estes of Oakland University. Good morning, gentlemen, and thanks very much for being here. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having us. So uh, when I was thinking about this question, um, I was thinking of, uh, of this question from two, two perspectives in particular. Uh, one has to do with a, a claim. Well, one has to do with the question of, of in what sense was this a, a revolution? Of course, the Americans at the time like to call this a revolution, but many people call it a rebellion. So I'm wondering if at some point you can help us think about the distinction between a revolution and a rebellion. Of course, from the British point of view, those Americans over there are engaging in a rebellion. And there were quite a few people on this side of the, the pond as well that, that thought of this as a rebellion as opposed to a revolution. So how, how might we think about that distinction? And the other um, point of view I was thinking about with this question is something like an argument that Woodrow Wilson made uh, and then some scholars and thinkers following Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson had claimed that 
the American Revolution really was not a revolution in the sense that the Americans were fighting for anything new or uniquely American. Uh, Wilson is famous for saying, you know, it, it kind of skip over that second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, which is in there for rhetorical effect. But, but from his point of view, the American Revolution was really an attempt by British Americans to restore the traditional rights of, of Englishmen, right? In other words, to be to be more British than the British were at the time <laughs> in the 1760s and 70s. So I'm hoping that at some point you can help us think through some of these questions as well as others, uh, points that you, that you might like to raise. But how, how, do we, how do we begin to think about this question? Uh, was the American Revolution really a, a revolution? But either of you like to start, I'll defer to either of you, whoever would like to take a stab at this first. Um, well, I'll just jump in first and then turn things over to uh, to Rob. I guess I think one of the key things for any of us in thinking about this question, and it's a great question, it's also a perennial question because it's been asked by Americans and by others uh, ever since the revolution. But I think one of the key things is simply, first of all, how do we define revolutionary? What does that term mean? How much change uh, does a revolution have to have to truly make it revolutionary, to make it that sharper break from the past? And I think related to that would be a second point, and that has to do with the time frame. I mean, in what period of time does revolutionary change have to take place? Is there a clock that says basically if certain amounts of change have not happened by X date, that makes it not revolutionary or very revolutionary, and so I think a lot of it depends on how and how we bracket that time, the chronology of revolution. Um, and part of that, again, goes to the definition. Do we think about the revolution as something that started uh, either? And another great question is, when did the revolution begin? Is it 1763? Is it 1765 with the Stamp Act? Is it 1775 with the war or 76 with the Declaration? Um, any number of things like that. But also the question of when does the revolution end, if it does, if it has? And how does it achieve certain things? Uh, so I think those questions of definition and timeline are really going to be critical to everything we're looking at today. And I think they've been really key to um, probably all the kinds of things that uh, the three of us and, and uh, all of our uh, attendees will be thinking about and talking about here today as well. I'll just add to uh, what Todd has said by by pointing to a really thoughtful study that came out, I think, in 1963 by the political theorist Hannah Arendt, and it was a book called On Revolution. And she pointed out that the, the word revolution has multiple meanings. Um, the sort of classic meaning of the word revolution is sort of an orbit, um, like a planet around the sun. And some revolutions seem to be like that. They seem to you know, start at point A, um, and then go full circle and return to point A. And I think that in, in many respects, uh, England's glorious revolution of 1688 and 1689 was conceived in such a way. Um, to make a very long story short, James II was the king. He wasn't uh, sharing power uh, adequately with parliament. Um, there were suspicions that he might be a tyrant, that he might uh, be Catholic. Um, and so he was overthrown, replaced by William and Mary, and they agreed uh, that they weren't um, ruling by divine right, that they were constitutional monarchs uh, sharing a balanced constitution uh, with parliament, um, that their job was to protect uh, the rights of, of Englishmen. Um, so th this was really a restoration of what had existed before. 
Um, then you could flash forward to the French Revolution. And the French Revolution um, was supposed to be a radical turn of events, um, not going from point A, circling back to point A, but going from point A to point B. You know, point A would be absolutism and, uh, you know, King Louis so numerous that they numbered in the teens um, to liberty and fraternity and equality. The irony, of course, about the French Revolution is that it's actually a circular revolution because um, you pass liberty, fraternity, and equality, um, and you get to the reign of terror, and you end up with Emperor Napoleon, um, you know, who is a king-like ruler himself. But what do we even mean by the word revolution, I think, is an interesting question. And uh, it's one that I think allows us to, to realize that possibly, perhaps, the American Revolution has... Um, elements of, of both definitions within it. Yeah, that's yep. great. And, and both of your points really illustrate the complexity of this question, right? We've really got to understand the multiple ways in which revolution can be understood. So, uh, yeah, the French Revolution, by the way, I mentioned Woodrow Wilson earlier, right? Wilson, part of the reason I think, part of the evidence Wilson used to suggest that the American Revolution wasn't really a revolution in a radical sense is that by comparison to the French Revolution, it looks very conservative in a way, right? So the French are trying to reinvent society really from scratch, make a clean break from the past and reinvent everything, right? That's pretty radical. Everything from their calendar to their, you know, to religion, to, you know, the clothes people wear and everything. So that's, so there's also that there's, as you point out, Rob, there's that degree of, uh, there's that question of degree, the, the, the degree to which the change is radical. And, and then couple that with Todd's point about over what period of time does that change happen? Yeah, it really does open up difficulties with thinking about this question, so. Yeah, I think all that's right. And I think also one of the, I mean, many historians have made this argument that the American Revolution was in many ways uh, a restorative conservative revolution in the sense that the colonies in some ways the colonists, I should say, were trying to almost turn back the clock to the way the relationship had been with the empire before uh, the Stamp Act, before the uh, various administrative changes with uh, regulatory control or with taxation, and then certainly with the presence of British troops in the colonies. They wanted to turn back the clock before that, and they wanted to be loyal to the king right up until the very end, until essentially the king made that impossible, declared them in rebellion, and, and we went from there. So I think there is that point about how whatever we think of the American Revolution, however we characterize that today, initially one of the ways of thinking about it was to see it as a kind of conservative movement to restore something that the colonists thought was being taken away from them by Parliament. And then once that became reconciliation became impossible, then that sort of opens up a new trajectory. But the origins of the revolution, I think, are really critical also to this conversation about thinking about how radical or, or revolutionary it was or wasn't. And, and one of the things that makes the American Revolution such a rich story and such a, a, a fascinating era to think about is that while everything that Todd just said is absolutely correct, I mean, I think fundamentally and originally it was a movement to restore the good old days. Um, once it became clear that that would not be possible within the framework of the British Empire, the colonists could no longer argue um, for upholding their English liberties, and they had to universalize their arguments about rights and speak about the rights of all mankind. And once that started to happen, it became abundantly clear 
that the rights of, of many members of mankind um, within America, within the American colonies, or after independence, you know, within the new uh, independent American states were not being upheld. And, and that, I think, is what really um, makes the revolution uh, a dynamic period where people are pursuing all sorts of uh, new approaches to freedom for people of different religions and different races and, and for men as well as women. Yeah, that reminds me, Rob, sorry, just if I jump in really quick, that reminds me that uh, to complicate this even further, as those kinds of considerations are taking place, you've got, this is further complicated by the fact that you're not talking about a nation necessarily of one people, right? But 13 different nations or colonies with 13 different peoples in many ways who have different interests, different ends, and so on and so forth, right? So this also adds a layer of complexion or complexity, I should say, right, to that to this question. But um, so we've got a couple of, we've got some great questions coming in, a number of questions. Um, so I'm just gonna turn to some questions. Um, uh, Matt asks, can you consider the American Revolution a political revolution, but not necessarily a social revolution? And what, I'm wondering if you can try to flush out the distinction maybe that he's trying to make here. Yeah, I, I think that's another way to distinguish the revolution. What, what kind of change are we talking about? Um, is this purely about independence? Because some of the revolutionaries wanted simply a separation from Great Britain, but were clearly not interested in unleashing a social revolution. Um, and, and yet others saw the revolution as an opportunity to sort of level the playing field in some ways, to, to rise, uh, to make a movement um, up the, the social and economic scales, which might not have been possible in, uh, in colonial life. So the question of, um, is it a political revolution, a social revolution, is it both? Uh, I think in some ways sort of turns on, and the whole question of how revolutionary is the revolution is, if it is only a political revolution, in the sense of independence and setting up self-government in the new United States. Is that revolutionary in and of itself, or does it have to go further to merit the label revolutionary? Uh, I mean, I think you can make a good argument that that in itself would be enough. I mean, it was often described as the first successful colonial rebellion in history. Um, but again, very, very quickly, and, and we'll see this in some of the documents, very quickly that idea of what the revolution could mean and what independence could mean expanded very broadly, really took on a whole different life that sort of led to a social revolution uh, and then a really sort of a political and social counter-revolution as well. And I think we've sort of seen that continue to play out throughout various uh, episodes and various um, uh, time periods in U.S. history. I'll just add that uh, as historians, we love telling stories. And a story that I think is very useful to anyone who's teaching the American Revolution, and I'll, I'll suggest this um, to, to all of the teachers who are um, listening in and, and participating with us, is the 1819 story by Washington Irving, Rip Van Winkle. And of course, the story of Rip Van Winkle is, is that Rip Van Winkle is this man who lives in the Catskills of New York. And uh, to make a long story short, well, to make a medium-length story short, it's not that long, which makes it so teachable. Um, Rip Van Winkle falls asleep for 20 years. Um, he falls asleep right before the American Revolution. He wakes up 20 years later, um, and he you know, wanders down this mountain and returns to his village. And everything, in some ways, uh, is, is it's very different. And in other ways, it hasn't changed much. I mean, there's more hustle and there's more bustle. Um, there's, there's more commerce. Uh, the, the tavern that used to be named after George III 
is now named after a man um, who, whose name he's never heard, a man named George Washington. Um, people are asking him if he's a Federalist or, or a Republican. Um, you know, clearly things have changed, but in other ways, uh, most of the people who lived in that village before the American Revolution made their living as farmers. And 20 years later, most of those people still make their livings as farmers. And in, in some ways, life hasn't changed all that much. So I think, you know, through Washington Irving's story, we could see how, at least within a span of 20 years, um, there's change, but there's also plenty of continuity. Yeah, that's yeah. great. It's really useful to, to think about it that way. That's, that's really interesting. Um, so again, we've got a number of great questions coming in here. Uh, uh, I'm gonna kind of combine two. Uh, one from, let me see if I can find it again. Um, well, Joe, Joe says, Brendan McConnellville, or McConville in the King's Three Faces, I'm not sure if either of you, or both of you are familiar with this, suggests that uh, colonial America was extremely royalist up until 1774, 1775, and then the break became very extreme. Uh, they wanted, you want to know what your thoughts are on this thesis, and then connected to that, Billy Gallagher mentioned Carl Becker's point that the revolution had sort of two parts, one for the struggle, one, uh, the struggle for government based on consent, and then the latter over what, what the form of government would take to reach this idea, so sort of in stages. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on those theses? If you have any. I'm sure you do, I know you have lots of thoughts. <laughs> yeah, too, too many to, to know where to start, I guess. In some ways. <laughs> those are good, tough questions. Right. Exactly, they're great questions. Um, yeah, this question of how uh, royalist, how loyalist the uh, colonies were and to what point is a, is a great question. And uh, certainly Brendan's book does a lot to, to make that argument. There's been a, um, another recent book by Eric Nelson, and I'm blanking on the title, Rob may know this, um, but that also sort of takes up that question and, and challenges McConville, I think, a little bit on that. But that's a question that's by no means settled. And I think there's a lot of evidence certainly to suggest that, certainly with uh, the Olive Branch Petition, uh, which is what December of 1775, after the war has already broken out, the colonists are making one final attempt to reach out to the king and say, please, we're trying to be loyal to you. Make parliament knock it off. Let Leave us alone. Let us be loyal. And so their loyalty is there very firm until the end. Uh, and then once the break comes, they're able to make that very rapid conceptual change. Um, Others, of course, have long seen the revolution as a slow-growing process, uh, going back to at least maybe 1763 and the changes that come along after that. And they have seen a number of, uh, or they make the argument for a number of um, stages of the rebellion, the colonists becoming gradually more accepting of independence even before 1775 and 76. So I, I think that's a great question that doesn't have an easy, easy answer. It doesn't have a. It's not a. It's not an uncontested. Question certainly, uh, and I think the other, um, I think the the Becker concept is usually, I think, often put in terms of. Um, I think it was his phrase: uh, the American Revolution is about both home rule and who should rule at home. And I think the, that sort of gets to that question uh, that Matt or someone, I think it was Matt, asked earlier about political and social revolutions. Um, it is about home rule. You know, whether the colonies rule themselves or not, that becomes settled by the Declaration and by Independence. But the question of who shall rule at home became obviously deeply contested and debated. Uh, and you see echoes of that certainly a decade later in the debate over the Constitution. Who, who is fit to rule, 
some people unfit to rule. So I think what the revolution does in many ways is just open up all these questions that now as an independent nation, the U.S. has to consider, and they can no longer do it in the context of the empire. Yeah, I think uh, there's another question that's been asked by Jenny O'Malley, who asked us to speak to um, social position based on merit rather than heredity. Um, that ties in nicely with Todd's final point. And, you know, it, it's maybe worth uh, calling to mind a, a great book written in 1992 by Gordon Wood called The Radicalism of the American Revolution. Um, you know, he makes his thesis very clear in the title of his book. Um, he argues that this is not a conservative revolution at all, um, that this is a revolution um, that, that unleashes uh, democracy uh, in a land that was once a monarchy. Um, the first third of his book is titled Monarchy, in fact. The middle part, which covers the years of the revolution itself, is called Republicanism. And then the final portion, which goes into the, the 1800s, is called Democracy. And it's worth remembering that during the colonial period, um, while we never had a formal titled nobility in America, this really was a deferential society. And you really did have a sense of where you stood within the social pecking order. And uh, throughout the United States, if you were a person walking down a road and there was a man on a white horse who was approaching you, um, you were supposed to tip your hat to him first, and then he would tip his hat back. And you know, if, if anyone in our audience has uh, been in the military or knows people in the military, you, you know that people of a lower rank are supposed to salute people of a higher rank. Well, these were people who weren't wearing uniforms, but they were very conscious of what their ranks were, and they somehow had a way of knowing um, what other people's ranks were. And, and that deferential world is really going to unravel and really going to be transformed by the time you get to the 19th century. And, and there are European visitors who come to the United States um, and they marvel at, at, at things that we take for granted. They marvel that um, restrooms are labeled ladies and gentlemen. And they kind of laugh at this because surely not everyone can be a gentleman. Surely not everyone can be a lady. Uh, but in America, we assert that that in fact is true. Now that, that's fascinating. What, what are, so what, are the cause, what causes that? I mean, that kind of change in terms of you know, merit versus heredity and this is, these are real social changes. What, 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 how do you explain that? I mean, what's behind that? It's, it's, it seems to me it's got to be, a, at least in, in large part, a change in ideas or just a, you know, the fundamental way in which Americans, as you said, Rob, think about equality, right? But does that happen quickly? Does it happen gradually after 1776? Does, uh, and what is it that's really driving this? What are the ideas that people are, you know, taking to heart that makes them do things like this, these strange Americans, right? So. Yeah, well, I guess some of it, just to build on, on what Rob has very nicely set up for us here is um, part of what uh, Gordon Wood talks about in that first third of his book. And the sort of sense that many, uh, for many, the revolution does sort of come in many ways very suddenly, and it's often driven by outside events. But there's also an awful lot about the revolution that does really speak to these ideas about what Americans thought about the idea of of, of deference, what they thought about the idea of equality. Um, and those are complicated questions and it's not, they're not binary. It's not, well, it's either one or the other because they often tended to coexist somewhat uneasily. And I think one of the things the revolution does, and again, some of our documents will speak to this as well, is to sort of set up the idea that the revolution does create in the United States this very different kind of social atmosphere than had existed before. 
where the idea and the question of, of betters and lessers is really very problematic, given some of the ideas and concepts of the revolution. Now, that doesn't mean the deference disappears, certainly, but it does mean that it's questioned. It does mean that people think about those relationships and think about, I think Wood phrased it in terms of dependence and independence. Uh, and those dependent relationships, whether they were master enslaved person, whether they were uh, a journeyman and uh, master mechanic, whether they were uh, apprentice and and uh, and mechanic, those kinds of relationships, husband, wife, even as, as we see with John and Abigail Adams, those kinds of power relationships were all at least examined and questioned, even if they weren't necessarily changed. And I think that speaks to something of the interior or mental aspect uh, that I think Adams, again, got at in that letter we read about how this was a revolution in, in the mind. Uh, and I think that's, that's again, one of the big, that may be where the most revolutionary aspect of the revolution took place, was just in the way people examined and thought about their place in society. Those are really great points, um, and, and I'll merely add that there are a lot of practical opportunities for people um, to make their way forward in society. I think wars oftentimes facilitate that sort of thing, and you know, the war for independence uh, is an all-hands-on-deck sort of experience, and it allows people like Alexander Hamilton, for example, um, you know, this person who, who moves from the Caribbean to New York. Um, he's born into obscurity and poverty. Uh, he doesn't know his father. He doesn't even know what year he was born. Was he born in 1755? Was he born in 1757? Uh, and yet, you know, he is able to secure a position for himself eventually as one of George Washington's key aides, um, as a colonel in the Continental Army, and then as a member of the Continental Congress, um, and, you know, eventually as a member of George Washington's cabinet. And then there's another revolution that will go on um, in the years following the War for Independence, the market revolution, you know, which arguably begins maybe in, say, 1793 with the invention of the cotton gin and continues into the 19th century. But it's this period of in incredible um, change in the economy and, uh, you know, a great degree of uh, dynamic progress as far as opportunities being created. And, uh, you know, these traditional communities which had existed along the eastern seaboard, um, you know, are, are growing rapidly and people are, are moving west and moving away and, uh, you know, in a new environment away from where you were born, you know, just as Hamilton discovered, you are free to define yourself. You are free to choose um, the church where you want to worship, the occupation that you wish to pursue. Um, you can reinvent yourself um, and declare independence from the, the, the st status of your birth um, in very much the same way that collectively the United States does by declaring independence from Great Britain. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Hamilton and Washington, Rob, especially Jenny, in the, <clears throat> excuse me, Q&A, uh, asked you to speak to Washington's insistence on merit in the army, right? So Washington, I know, really did place a lot of emphasis on getting officers of merit in the right positions. Uh, but uh, but also, of course, Washington, we know, had to deal with Congress trying to, you know, sort of foist certain people, certain officers on him. And But yeah, so these things were insinuating their way into the way people thought about, uh, you know, these basic relationships, which is really fascinating. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, Todd, you, you mentioned, I think, Todd, it was you that brought up the, the letter to, that uh, Adams wrote to Thomas Jefferson 
in which he says, uh, as to the history of the revolution, my, my ideas may be peculiar, perhaps singular. What do we mean by the revolution? The war, that was no part of the revolution, he says. It was only an effect and consequence of it. And then he says, the revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was affected from 1760 to 1775 in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was drawn at Lexington. And again, we've, we've touched on this idea uh, earlier in our conversation. It's a really interesting uh, sort of capacious or comprehensive account of, of the revolution, right? But, but there, then he goes on, he says some interesting things, and I'm hoping you can help us make sense of, of what uh, Adams is getting at here. Uh, uh, the records of, he talks about, you know, the records of the legislatures, pamphlets, newspapers, and the colonies ought to be consulted. Um, he says uh, uh, these ought to be consulted during that period to ascertain the steps by which the public opinion was enlightened and informed concerning the authority of parliament over the colonies. And I find it interesting here that he really places, he really puts emphasis on changing views of parliament's authority as sort of the central aspect of this change that's happening during the revolution. Uh, it reminded me of a question that came up earlier, and I'm trying to see if I can find it here again. Uh, where was it? The question was, oh, uh, from Timothy, why did the Declaration of Independence, 1776, target George III for its criticism and not include Parliament itself? Was this tied somehow to the idea that its predecessors had issued the original charter? So. How do we think about this shift of emphasis from for blaming Parliament or rethinking Parliament's authority to the King's authority? And then there's other interesting things Adams brings up that I'm hoping you can clarify as well. But <laughs> yeah, I really love that Adams letter because there's so much there, and Adams is actually, whether he realizes it or not, is actually acting like an historian. He's trying to explain the cause of something, and he's trying to trace it back and and show the development and to make the case that historical, great historical transformations don't just happen, that even if a revolution or a war outbreak is very sudden, there are a number of things that have been happening beneath the surface for some time. And Adams traces that back again to at least 1760. And it's interesting that he points again, as, as you noted, Chris, the pamphlets, newspapers, uh, broadsides, public meetings, and things like this, because that's where the ideas were being debated. That's where Americans got not just their news, but also began to learn how to think about these kinds of uh, incursions, we might say, into the power of the colonial assemblies. Because I think one of the reasons that Parliament looms so large in these arguments, and one of the reasons why Parliament is such the target of the colonies is because Parliament is very directly trying to legislate for the colonies, but no longer simply in things like the Navigation Acts, that involve trade and commerce, but they're trying to legislate in many cases for interior colonial policies. And of course, the colonies already had their own legislatures. They chose people, they chose their own leaders. They were used to governing themselves, drafting their own laws, uh, passing and acting on, on their own authority. And that was something that fundamentally was threatened by Parliament's actions after 1760. So I think that's where the change is really noticed. And so much of those early struggles that you read about in the newspapers or pamphlets that Adams refers to really bring up these questions of what does it mean to be a British citizen? What does it mean to be represented? Uh, can the colonies be represented in Parliament? Uh, and of course, that's, again, just sort of a brief summary of, of many of the issues that, that played out. The pamphlet literature uh, is just voluminous from that time period. I mean, the Americans were a very 
uh, writerly kind of people in a sense, or at least the people producing these pamphlets and newspaper pieces. Uh, and we should note too on this occasion, it's uh, sort of timely in a sad way, the sort of dean of American historians of the American Revolution, Bernard Bailyn, uh, who for many, many years was at Harvard, died just last week, I think it was, yeah. 97, 98. Uh, and Bailyn made a huge, uh, sort of his first big book, which is still has to be reckoned with, 50 years old now, was a book uh, on the pamphlets of the revolution that became the ideological origins of the American Revolution. And Balin also, of course, made a tremendous impact by training so many other historians, uh, Gordon Wood, Pauline Mayer, Mary Beth Norton, uh, Richard Brown, Jack Rayco, uh, on and on and on. Um, and he had such a, a major impact on the field in so many ways that a lot of our sort of modern historical and historiographical understanding of the revolution comes from Balin and the work of Balin's students. And I, I think it's interesting to go back and look at what Balin first pointed to, which kind of ushered in a whole new stage of revolutionary scholarship, was to pay attention to these pamphlets. What were they writing? What were they saying? What's expressed in those ideas? Yeah, that's fascinating. Since Todd mentions uh, Bernard Balin and his students, we've uh, we've already brought up a book by Gordon Wood. Um, I'll you know bring up another book uh, by one of his students, uh, the late great Pauline Mayer. Her first book, uh, based on her dissertation at Harvard, written under uh, Bernard Balin, was called From Resistance to Revolution. And she really gets at this question that you asked, Chris, about um, how people went from blaming parliament to blaming the king. And as she points out in her study, which covers the years 1760 to 1776, um, at, at first, people really didn't want to blame anyone in England. Um, you know, they were such fervent British patriots in America in the years after the French and Indian War. Um, they very much believed that Great Britain was the freest nation on the planet. Um, they reveled in their English liberties. Uh, they, they loved the, uh, the English Constitution. And, and so, you know, when they started to see incursions on their rights, such as the Proclamation Line of 1763 or the Stamp Act, they didn't even blame the English, they blamed the French. They thought that you know members of parliament, just a few bad apples had fallen under the pernicious influence of the French. Um, and then they said, okay, maybe it's not the French, maybe it's just a few bad apples in parliament. And then you know, as time passed, they said, maybe it's just the ruling Tory majority within parliament, but there's still plenty of great Whigs in England um, who will come to our rescue. And then they started to blame Parliament as a whole, and they thought that as an institution it was corrupt. But the king will save us. And, and finally it became apparent to them that, that the king was complicit in all of this, you know, that the king was ordering troops um, marching out from Boston to Lexington and Concord to seize their, their weapons um, and, and start a war. And, uh, you know, it's only then that the Declaration of Independence became necessary. Um, and, you know, note, the war begins in April of 1775, but it takes more than a year for Americans um, to sort of marshal the su a sufficient degree of public support to be able to declare their independence. There's still a lot of Americans um, who view themselves as, as really good and really great Britons because Britain was not only the world's most powerful and not only the world's richest, but also at that point in time, the freest nation on the planet. And essentially what American revolutionaries are arguing is that Britain wasn't free enough and that we could do a better job protecting our liberties on our own for ourselves.
Yeah, that's yeah, really that's great. great. Thank you. Yeah, that, and by the way, you just answered two or three other questions that I was going to raise, Robin, that was great. Like somebody asked about, you know, what the views of uh, you know, those who were not necessarily on board as patriots were, right? Was this a revolution for all Americans or just for some Americans? I think you articulated that nicely. And by the way, somebody asked you, uh, the author of Resistance to Revolution you mentioned was Pauline uh, Mayer. That's right? correct, yeah. And then, Todd, I think you mentioned the book by Eric Nelson. Were you thinking of the Royalist Revolution? I think that's right. Which I, I think, think came out right. about four or five years ago. So just yes. people are keeping a list of other good things to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Um, th this is great. This question is uh, directed at, at, at you, Rob. But uh, Todd, of course, feel free to jump in uh, from Billy. Since you brought up military, is it fair to speak of the importance of Newburgh to the revolution? I, I think that's an interesting question because, you know, per personally, you know, I, I, I'm sort of, I'll admit I'm biased, but I'm sort of proud to say that that the American Revolution is so much different and therefore in my mind better than the French Revolution because of the, 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 you know, the terror and the consequences. But, but the, the Newburgh problem shows that rev the American Revolution on the verge of becoming something potentially much worse, does it not? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so the, New, the Newburgh conspiracy, as historians sometimes refer to it, uh, was a moment where the officers of the Continental Army seemed poised to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, and just to tell the story of the Newburgh conspiracy requires me to back up just a little bit. Of course, you know, it, to, to a large degree, the war for independence comes to a conclusion with our victory in 1781 at the siege of Yorktown. Um, but peace wasn't secured until 1783. So in between, you know, the Treaty of Paris and uh, the, the victory at Yorktown, Washington knew that he had to keep the army together if we were going to have any leverage at the negotiating table. And he makes a decision um, to bring the army back up to the Hudson Valley of New York, which was a strategically important position because, of course, British forces were concentrated uh, in Manhattan as well as in Canada. And so the Hudson River, um, you know, was a means of communication between those two um, points. So Washington has his army uh, in modern-day New Windsor and Newburgh, New York, uh, just immediately north of me. I'm in a place called Cornwall and Hudson, and immediately south of me is West Point. Um, so this is a, a very, you know, strategically important area. And, you know, it, it strikes me that when armies aren't fighting and when armies aren't training, um, when armies are basically just sitting around, which is what the army does after it constructs you know, uh, huts for, for, for quarters uh, in New Windsor and in Newburgh. When they're not fighting or, or training, they're complaining. And this army has a lot to complain about. Um, there are people who are encamped at Newburgh who haven't been paid. This is mind-blowing. They haven't been paid, some of them, in five years. Many had not been paid in months. Many were paid instead with IOUs, with promissory notes. Um, many thought that they were entitled to um, you know, pensions, uh, half pay for life, or grants of land. And many feared that when the war finally came to a conclusion with uh, a peace treaty, that they would be disbanded, that they would lose all leverage, and that the Continental Congress, which had done such a very poor job um, for, for reasons for which, you know, it wasn't entirely responsible. I mean, it had no power to, to directly tax, but it, it had done such a poor job taking care of them they thought, you know, most certainly they'll be abandoned. And so, you know, there were rumors, there were discussions, there was a murky sort of conspiracy, and a few ideas floated. Maybe the army should march west 
and leave the United States undefended. Maybe the army should march, you know, with its weapons uh, upon the Capitol, upon the Continental Congress, um, and and demand uh, that they receive, uh, you know, pensions and grants of land and back pay. And Washington got wind of this, and you know, he appeared at what was supposed to be a secret meeting of the Continental Army's officers, and he shows up, and I could just imagine, you know, how mortified all those officers felt. Here was George Washington, and he reads a speech where he, you know, implores them to think about what posterity will think of their actions. Um, and, and then to sort of uh, put an exclamation mark after his remarks, he pulls out of his pocket a letter that he's received from a member of the Continental Congress, and he sort of squints down at this letter, and it's, it's very difficult to read because the writing's kind of small. And unbeknownst to a lot of people in the Army, his eyesight has been failing. I mean, he's now um, about 50 years old. Um, and so he reaches into his other pocket, and he pulls out something that people had not seen him with before. He pulls out a pair of spectacles, a pair of glasses. And as he puts them on, and, and in the 18th century, glasses were seen as a symbol of, of infirmity and old age. So this is really an affecting display. And then Washington puts them on, and he says, you know, gentlemen, you will forgive me for I have grown not only gray, but also blind in your service. And maybe I had to be there, but at that moment, you know, never had George Washington seemed so big, and never did those officers feel so small. I mean, here was a man who had served throughout almost the entirety of the war without pay. Here was a man who literally had horses shot out from under him. Here was a man who had exposed himself to every hardship, who had exposed himself to every danger, here was a man who, in, in some ways, as the richest man in Virginia, had more to lose than any of them. And here were they grumbling about pay and pensions. And if ever there was a serious threat um, to civilian control of the United States, it dissipated right there and right then. Wow, that's such a great story. Yeah, I, I'm almost always moved to tears when I hear that story. Because, because again, of the... And what it reminds me of, but and it draws me back to to this letter from Adams, right, as he's describing the causes of the revolution. And when he closes out this paragraph uh, where he's talking about um, how this how opinions were changing, he says the Congress of 1774 resembled in some respects, though I hope not in many, the Council of Nice and ecclesiastical history. It assembled the priests from the east and the west and the north and the south. We've compared notes engaged in discussions and debates and formed results by one vote and by two votes, which went out to the, so, you know, there's this kind of, it's kind of like a business-like transaction, <laughs> the way he's describing the revolution. But what, the, you know, the story of Washington that you just uh, told Rob reminds me of this. There are really important personalities that make this revolution. I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, the revolution being successful to the extent that it was a success, right? That it met its goal without a Washington, without a Jefferson, and even without an Adams, right, and, and many, many others. So the role that particular persons played, and these are, the, of course, the big name uh, folks that we, that we tend to focus on, is not, not unimportant in bringing this about. I, Chris, I, I agree so much, and I mean, you know, I just want to make a case for the importance of contingency in history, and, uh, you know, one way that teachers might want to illustrate this to their students, especially at the end of the fall semester before winter break, is to show that scene from the classic film, It's a Wonderful Life, where George Bailey, you know, the main character, wishes that he had never been born. 
And then uh, Clarence, the angel, um, shows him this alternative reality where he had never been born. And, you know, even though George Bailey is just a, a humble, small-town banker, the world is entirely different. So people really do make a difference. And, um, you know, if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, you know exactly what I'm referring to. And if anyone in our audience has not seen it, um, I, I want to endorse it heartily. It's a, it's a great film. I want you to bring some Sorry, Todd, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Rob's giving us homework here. <laughs> watch this film. That's right. Read these books and watch them. Actually, I wanted to give um, sort of offer a thought that tied in uh, Chris's point uh, about how the revolution was seen and, uh, and, and the great story that Rob just told that, that he put to use there. And that's to sort of talk about the way that the revolution was seen by Americans themselves, uh, particularly in the 19th century, because Initially, I think the American Revolution was interpreted by many Americans as being a beacon for the rest of the world to follow. And that's one of the reasons why there was such enormous excitement and fellow feeling when the French Revolution started. You know, we had the same enemy, we're trying to make the same statements, we're trying to create a republic. But very, very quickly, the French Revolution began to spin out of control, and Americans began to note differences more than similarities between the American and the French Revolution. So that they began to, to think about the American Revolution as being somehow unique rather than the kind of thing that could be emulated and copied. And I think that became a, a kind of dominant interpretation that Americans had arguably for much of the 19th century, that the American Revolution was this classic world historical event that was also exceptional and unique. And I think a lot of that is tied to the stories like Washington and Newburgh. And it's tied to the stories about Americans creating uh, their own forms of self-government and about all the, uh, Pauline Mayer talks about this in another book, American Scripture, all of the local community declarations of independence that were drafted by ordinary citizens and then sent to the Continental Congress before the Declaration of Independence. Um, those were all seen as the kinds of things that other revolutions just didn't have or couldn't produce or couldn't do. And it sort of fueled that idea that Americans and the American Revolution, more to the point, was this exceptional, extraordinary event that just could never be duplicated. And if you read a history book, um, history is written in the, I don't know, 1860, if you read George Bancroft or uh, read uh, uh, some of those other historians who wrote then, Richard Hildreth uh, and others, you get these incredibly uh, celebratory pictures of the revolution that really just say, you know, nobody else should even try. This is the best ever and the best it can be. And that view really lasted until Charles Beard, because, you know, Beard is a huge figure in American historical circles by arguing that the, uh, no, they were just out for each other. They were out for money. They were out for the, their own good. It was a scramble for power. He wasn't very dignified and sort of just like anybody else. And I think the one of the things that made the Beard thesis so, not only so controversial, but such a major intervention was because it really drove against a century of public perception that, oh, the American Revolution is this incredible event. And that ties us back to the whole theme today, I think, of how do we define the American Revolution? What kind of revolution was it? What did it mean? What did it change? Was that enough? Was it limited by time? Is it ongoing? Is it enduring? All those things. And I think, again, um, Jefferson and others kind of spoke to some of that uh, during their lifetime. But that's something that Americans, I think, continue to think about. It's probably worth noting that that one reason the American Revolution turned out as it did, um, and you know, we should note that it, it turned out with 
people like Thomas Jefferson uh, writing his last letter um, on the eve of the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, he, he writes in his letter to Roger Waitman, um, may it, that is the Declaration of Independence, may it be to the world what I believe it will be, to some parts sooner, to others later, but finally to all, the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves and to assume the blessings and security of self-government. I mean, I think there really is among the American revolutionaries a hope, a belief, a faith that they are starting something that is going to continue um, everywhere around the world um, for everyone. Um, but not all at once. And it's worth noting, too, that I think the American colonies were an especially fertile ground for our sort of revolution, because uh, at least the free population uh, probably had a higher standard of living than anyone any, anywhere else. Um, there was a higher literacy rate, um, you know, by all estimations, um, than, than anywhere else, including back in England. And, and so this really was a, a middling uh, land where, where people owned land, typically. I mean, if you were a free person, chances were um, you were your own boss. You had a family farm. Um, you were, to a large degree, self-sufficient. And, and so uh, it's a different sort of revolution than the revolution that you'll see in Haiti in 1800. I think Billy Gallagher uh, mentioned the, Haiti, the Haitian Revolution in one of his questions. It's a different sort of revolution than you'll see in France in the 1780s and 1790s. Um, and, and I think that's, that's part of uh, the list of ingredients that makes it you know, so rich and so interesting, um, and also in many respects, so complicated. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you both brought, brought these points up. Uh, I think it was Benjamin earlier who asked specifically about the effect of the American Revolution on other societies and other other peoples, right? So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point about the, the Haiti uh, the Revolution in Haiti. Even this, uh, the revolutions in in Latin America in the early 1800s, I know, became somewhat controversial because Americans had their own opinions about how those revolutions, what they ought to look like. But there's some real differences, as you point out, Rob, between the kinds of the kind of oppression, if you will, that Americans in in, in North America were dealing with under the British, and the kind of oppression that that Latin American peoples were dealing with under Spanish colonial oppression. Big difference, right? And and clearly had an effect on the on the, the, the nature and the the character of these revolutions in in South America. But well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you both brought that up. So. Um, we have uh, the question. Of race, I was going to say the question of race obviously looms very large in this as well. Yes, uh, perfect. With Latin America, with uh, enslaved peoples in the Caribbean, the American South, and things like that, and the degree to which revolutions might empower um, people of darker skin was deeply frightening to a great number of Americans. So there's a real ambivalence. Uh, there, there's another recent book um, by Caitlin Fitz uh, that looks at the question of, of South American, Central American revolutions, uh, primarily, I think, in the early 19th century, and American attitudes toward them. And so on the one hand, Americans were deeply flattered because they were dedicated to their honor in some ways and trying to follow in that stream. But in other ways, they had real reservations because of, of what it might mean in terms of empowering groups of people that, that, that raise all kinds of uncomfortable questions for uh, Americans, many of whom, of course, were slave owners themselves. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic point. Well, sorry, Rob, if you were going to jump in. 
Yeah, no, I was just going to, to add to that. I mean, th there was a great degree of ambivalence and uncertainty among the American revolutionaries about the degree to which other people in other parts of the world were ready for the sort of system that we were able to embrace. And even for us, I think they all appreciated that this is a bold and dicey and uncertain experiment with self-government. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give a, a mention to a fantastic essay um, by a historian at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, um, Brian Steele. Um, it's titled, the, the Yeomanry of America are not the Canai of Paris. And essentially what, what Brian Steele is pointing out that um, that's a quotation from Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson in the 1780s, before the French Revo Revolution began, believed that the people of France, um, so these aren't even darker-skinned people, these are you know white people, but the, the people of France aren't ready for self-government for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, one, because uh, you know Jefferson, like, like many Americans um, in the 18th century, uh, had uh, a, a, a suspicions about Catholicism and how the hierarchical nature of the Roman Catholic Church um, conditioned people to think. He, he realized that the people of France were not a middling people like uh, the people of the United States. He realized that there was you know, great uh, inequality in terms of wealth. There were people who owned lots and lots of land, and there were people who essentially owned nothing but the shirts upon their backs. So Jefferson thought that for France, um, you know, he hoped that there would be reforms, but he thought that maybe the most we could really expect the French people um, to succeed with would be a British-style constitutional monarchy um, that would provide them with, this, with almost political training wheels that would allow them gradually over the course of generations to evolve a system similar um, to the one that we enjoyed in the United States. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? So in my uh, readings of some of the revolutions in, in Latin America, again, I know that um, the United States often uh, requested certain conditions be met, right, before recognizing the independence of, of, of certain peoples and states in Latin America. And, and one of the conditions was not that they be not non-monarchical, right? In fact, in some cases, having a monarchical government as a result of a revolution was perfectly acceptable. But the main condition was that you, they not allow themselves to be governed by a foreign power, interestingly enough, right? But that's really interesting, Ralph. I'm just making a connection out loud here that I hadn't thought of before, based on what you were bringing up. Now, since we're talking about, now we're talking about the effect of the revolution abroad, there have been a number of questions having to do with the effect of the revolution on slavery domestically. And, and, uh, and I'm not sure if which of you or both of you recommended uh, uh, two writings having to do with slavery during the revolution. One, the, the, the short excerpt from Lemuel Haynes and the other, Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence with that very famous paragraph that was cut having to do with the slave trade. So, and there were a number of questions along these lines to the, uh, on the extent to which the revolution and the changes of, of thinking that, that were part of the revolution had an impact on how we thought about equality in terms of race and, and even gender. So would either of you like to help us think, how do we start to think about those changes uh, as a result of the revolution? Well, I, I think this gets right to the heart of the question of how revolutionary was the revolution? Um, because I think the Lemuel Haynes piece is, is very important because it comes immediately. Uh, with the, the coming of the Declaration of Independence and this idea of extending liberty further 
obviously speaks to the question of, of slavery and any sort of inequality that society is, is going to have. Uh, if you take the language of the Declaration seriously, as Haynes and many others did, then how can you justify uh, dependent relationships? How can you justify uh, the enslavement of other people? How can you justify all other kinds of inequalities in society? And so I think you have, with the advent of the revolution, you, of the Declaration, I should say, you've got immediately two reactions. The one exemplified by Lemuel Haynes of saying, extend this further, keep this going. We want to get this started, we're on the right track, but don't just stop with independence from parliament. Don't just stop with independence as a nation. Keep this going and make this a true social, societal revolution that really attacks all these inequalities and injustices and asymmetries of power that we have. But against that, you have also John Adams, who sort of pops up everywhere. And he writes, uh, Adams writes, I think in 1778, uh, a letter to James Sullivan, I think a friend of his, where he basically thinks out loud and says, well, where's this going to end? I mean, pretty soon women will want the right to, to vote and have power. College students will want to have some degree of independence and tell their instructors what to teach. And, and, and he recognizes, he grasps the implications of the revolution. And I think Adams has always argued the revolution is in people's minds. I think he's right about that. I think it is. And I think the, the, the greatest revolution does take place because it gets people to examine those unequal relationships and say, well, we should extend this further and do something about that. But even as Adams understands that, he sort of rebels against it because he, there's got to be some sort of structure, has to be some sort of hierarchy, there's got to be some sort of respect for uh, power dynamics and relationships and things like that. And, and so I think it unleashes those ideas but very, very quickly, even as Lemuel Haynes steps up and says, what about slavery? Uh, many others will say, well, no, that would just undo everything. And we can't have that. So I think immediately the implications of the revolution are grasped by people. But some cheer and some sort of pull back in despair at what's been opened up here. It's it's it, those are such great points, and uh, you know Lemuel Haynes is really an interesting figure because not only does he um, take inspiration from the words of the Declaration of Independence to assert um, that that all men you know should enjoy equal rights, but but he lives that experience. I mean, he is uh, a person who's um, born really into obscurity on July eighteenth, seventeen fifty three. And I remember, you know, the, the date of his birth because I share that birthday. I was born on July 18th. Not as impressive as Lemuel Haynes, though. I mean, his, his mother, as far as we could tell, was a white indentured servant. Um, his father was an unidentified African-American. Um, so his, you know, heritage, his paternity is very much in doubt. Um, he is an indentured servant as a boy. But the war for independence will create opportunities for him. And once his uh, period of indenture ends, he joins the Connecticut militia. Um, he serves garrison duty at Fort Ticonderoga after it's captured. Um, and he turns to the ministry. And he will become the first ordained Congregationalist minister of color in all of Connecticut. Um, so, I mean, very much like Alexander Hamilton, he himself is, is a real success story and sort of shows that in this revolutionary environment, Opportunities are available that maybe weren't um, when colonial society was much more settled. Um, but the Declaration of Independence that inspired Haynes um, would have been much more inspiring if uh, Jefferson's draft had been left untouched. 
Um, you know, as, as Todd mentioned, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson submitted a draft to the Continental Congress um, that included a passage that I think makes very clear that when Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, he was not referring just to white men. He was referring to all mankind. Um, because in his draft, uh, among the charges against the king, Jefferson writes that the king has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who had never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither, you know, during the Middle Passage. Um, this piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. In other words, um, a number of colonies had tried to restrict the importation of enslaved people from Africa, um, but the British government never approved those measures. So, you know, this is, I think, Jefferson's attempt um, to, to put on record, you know, within America's birth certificate, the fact that slavery is inconsistent with the best of our ideals. But of course, you know, at the moment of America's birth, the issue of slavery possessed the potential to lead to American disunion. And the delegates from Georgia and South Carolina said, if this remains in, you could count us out. And at the moment of America's birth, you know, we compromise on this issue, and this passage is struck from the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. And I, it reminds me, too, in the, in the notes that Jefferson kept of, of the debates in Congress, right? Jefferson kept notes of the debates at the time they were. He also mentioned certain, the, the, I forget how he puts it, the delicate consciences of certain gentlemen of the North who were also involved in bringing, so it was, it was mainly, you know, the potential for disunion among Northern and Southern slaves, but states, but there were also apparently some in the North, you know, I mean, most of the slaves came in through Boston or, or New England at the time, right? Am I not? And then were, or many of them were. So, but still, the, the potential for disunion here is a very important factor. But it was also, it also reminds me, Rob, your points that, you know, even though that was cut, uh, that beautiful paragraph, um, in many ways, beautiful paragraph was cut from the final declaration. The very first grievance against the king when you get to the list of grievances, is he has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public. So that could include those those requests by various colonies to abolish the importation of slaves, and it probably did in Jefferson's mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and just to build on that briefly, I mean the the compromises that Rob just very nicely talked about there in the Continental Congress, and the debate over whether to include that or not. There's sort of a second round of that at the Constitutional Convention, Philadelphia, in 1787 where again, there's, should we do something about slavery? How should we, should we protect this? Should we come out against it? How do we build a government that factors this in in some way? And we get another series of compromises there, most famous being the three-fifths compromise. Uh, and again, it's primarily done at the insistence of Georgia and South Carolina uh, to try to keep them in the union, because again, the feeling was union must be preserved. Everything else can be sacrificed to maintain that. And so this issue, which is, would become, of course, so, uh, would reach the point where it simply could not be compromised anymore uh, and would, would produce the outbreak of the, of the Civil War. At that time, again, the, the idea was, well, let's, let's compromise. Let's get through and preserve the Union. 
So there are within uh, almost a decade, these two great uh, efforts to sort of, where they walk right up to the line of, of anti-slavery and doing something about it. And in both cases, pull back to sort of look at this, what they consider this larger good um, of, of the union. And so sort of prolong that controversy uh, for some time. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. So, and again, this is, this is controversial and it makes a lot of us as Americans uneasy that this happened, but, but, the, but the idea was solidify the union first, as you said, and then, and then as we, you know, more and more of us realize that slavery is in tension, the existence of slavery is in tension with the claims that we make in the declaration, we'll deal with that as we can down the road. So union first, slavery second. So, I mean, and again, that makes a lot of us uneasy. And I think that, that helps to answer some of the, uh, the questions or comments of, of, you know, from Timothy and Claire about, you know, Jefferson's seeming inconsistencies on these things. I mean, there are personal reasons, you know, personal reasons for Jefferson's inconsistency with regard to slavery, financial things, and so on and so forth. But I, 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 I think it's possible for someone to be opposed to something in principle and yet not find it within themselves to act on that principle. I mean, it's a, it's a strange dichotomy in some ways, but. Well, Rob, did you want to jump in on, please? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, Chris, that, I mean, I think, you know, when people uh, ask the question, you know, how is it that the man um, who owned, uh, how is it the man who wrote that all men are created equal owned slaves? I think that really in, inverts the reality of the question. How is it that a man um, who was born into a slaveholding society whose very first memory as a two or three-year-old was, was being carried on a pillow and looking up into the face of an African-American man who his family legally owned, how is it that that man was able to write that all men are created equal? I mean, I, I think that's the real change. The headline is not that slavery existed in America. Slavery existed, um, you know, everywhere in, in one, you know, shape or form throughout the world. Um, how is it that, that these people who were from this society where slaveholding is so prevalent, um, where one-fifth of the population is owned um, by other people, how is it that they were able to come up with these ideas that all men are created equal? And as, as far as Jefferson is concerned, I mean, it's a long and complicated story, but at least in 1776, it was not legal for him to free his slaves. His first act as a member of the House of Burgesses in 1769 was to propose a law that would have made it legal for slaveholders to voluntarily manumit or emancipate their slaves, and that was voted down. Um, and sadly, you know, by the time uh, that it was legal to free your slaves in Virginia, um, in addition to freeing them, you had to essentially post a bond, um, you know, for their security. And Jefferson was just so deeply in debt um, that that, I mean, his his slaves were his collateral. Um, in, in many respects, he didn't even really own them anymore. I mean, it's a it's a tragic story, yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah, that's really well put. That's a, and that's an interesting, really interesting, and I think helpful way to think about it. There is, I think, a perceptible change in the minds of many Americans with regard to slavery that occurs as a result of the ideas of the revolution. And, I, I, and if I can just uh, get up on a soapbox for a minute, I think that's uh, very briefly. I think that's something that the, the 1619 narrative, by the way, misses. Right, the possibility that 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 uh, that some kind of change was actually possible with regard to how we think about these things. Uh, but I'll get down off my soapbox. I don't want to go too far with this. Um, 
So we have about two minutes left, and uh, there are a number of great questions left. Um, so I hesitate to bring up anything big with only two minutes left. <laughs> but, uh, oh, here's an easy one. Was the American Revolution Christian? Uh, or can you speak to the role of religion on the revolution? Uh, I don't know if we can do that in two minutes or not, but uh, two, three minutes. But um, I, I'll just say quickly, I, 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 one thing I noticed, even in that letter from uh, that, that passage from Lemuel Haynes, how he combines in his, in his criticism of slavery, he combines uh, the argument that slavery is a violation not only of natural law, but he also cites scripture. And I, I find that to be an interesting aspect of the revolution as well for many Americans. That is that they found an agreement in many ways between, between the, the, the you know, religious ideas, religious tenets, and the teachings of, of, of natural law, natural rights, if you will, the kinds of ideas expressed in the declaration, but um, so that's a really big question. So I apologize uh, for throwing that out there at the last minute. So maybe one last question. Uh, how do we, I saw this from a number of uh, people, how, how do we make this topic that we're discussing today relevant for students uh, today, right? What, what is it that we can put in front of students to get them to say, this is something worth taking seriously. Well, I'm going to steal a line from Todd, uh, and this maybe allows us to come full circle to the beginning of our conversation. Um, you know, Todd early on raised the possibility that perhaps the American Revolution has not yet ended. And I think that that is entirely possible. In fact, I'd like to think that, that it hasn't, that we're still trying to live up to the best ideals, the best principles of the American founding. And, um, you know, I think one way that you can make it very relevant for students is to challenge them to think about um, the ways in which people today are trying to uphold the values and the virtues of revolutionary America. Um, you know, we, we certainly were not perfect at doing it back then. Um, we probably have never been perfect at doing it at any point in our history. Um, and I'm sure that 200 years from now, people will look back upon us and judge us by the standards of 1776 and say that we don't have it exactly right. We might not be able to anticipate even all of their criticisms, um, but, but certainly will be criticized. So let's think about that. I mean, to what extent are, are we doing a good job upholding the, the spirit of 76? Yeah, Ross put that very, very nicely, and I, I think I would agree completely with what he said there. Um, the idea that the revolution is an ongoing uh, experiment, if you still want to call it that, certainly an ongoing movement, I think has a lot of merit to it. And I think you can, with our students, um, start with contemporary headlines, contemporary debates today, and link that back to the revolution under this question, is the revolution still up? Is it still with us? Are we still trying to, as a nation, struggle to live up to those um, ideals? And if that's the case, why has it taken so long? Why are there still inequalities and injustice that we see today? Why are there still um, uh, so many Americans who are disaffected or feel uh, marginalized uh, clearly have been oppressed in some way. And why are these kinds of issues still with us? In many ways, you could argue they do trace back to the revolution and those ideas and the attempt to try to, uh, again, answer that question, how far do we extend this? How far does the revolution go? If it's about independence and equality, how does that go? How far should that go? And are there any restrictions or limits and how quickly should these things 
be done. Uh, because the charge of those who want to push back against that is is always well, just just wait a while, just 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 be patient. Uh, this was certainly one of the refrains of many who opposed the civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s. Just wait your turn, or, or be careful, or be patient. Uh, and, and of course, many people were unwilling to 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 do that. So I think the the question of is the revolution still, uh, or maybe what's the status of the American Revolution? If we see it as an ongoing movement, what's its status today? And what might it be like uh, in, in, into the future? As Rob says, 200 years from now, um, if, if, if there's still such a thing as the United States of America, then, then what will it look like? And what will people be saying about the revolution, but also about Americans of the early 21st century and what we have done or did not do to try to further those ideals? Yeah, great thoughts. Uh, great closing thoughts from both of you on that. And Todd, you, when you were talking, you took me right back to you know, Dr. King and the I Have a Dream speech, right, where his, one of his arguments was the, the revolution is still ongoing, it's not complete, and the time to, to bring it to completion is now, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but great thoughts, and I, I really do appreciate your, your taking the time, gentlemen, for, uh, for being here this morning. I've learned a great deal uh, for both of you. I have a lot of things to think about <laughs> as a result of our conversation. Uh, so I'm very, very grateful. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. It was fun. Yeah, that was fun. And I, and I want to thank our, everybody who joined us for submit, submitting some fantastic questions. Uh, again, I'm sorry that we didn't get all, to all of them, but that's what happens when you get a you know a flood of great questions. But uh, these are really helpful to think about. So, just a reminder also that you'll receive an email with the link for your certificate of participation. If you enjoy this webinar, if you enjoyed this webinar and and, and the other resources that Ashbrook provides, please help us spread the word about those things. Uh, share the archive link that you'll receive uh, in your email to your colleagues, friends, uh, share it on social media, uh, and get the word out. Um, but these are both worthwhile and pleasant things to do. Our next webinar will be Saturday, September 12th, and we'll consider this question. Uh, are both, were both the Constitution and Bill of Rights essential or, or necessary? So do we really need a Constitution, and did we really need a Bill of Rights? So. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Until then, take care, and I look forward to seeing you at our next webinar. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. You can learn more about our free programs, resources, and our documents collection for teachers, students, and citizens at teachingamericanhistory, or TAH.org.